We are in Luke 9. We'll be walking through verses 1 through 9. If you don't have a Bible with you, or you can't turn one on, on your phone or your iPad, there's one in front of you. I'd encourage you to follow along with the text. I think it will help you. I want to begin with a question. What is the mission of the church? Well, for one, we exist to edify the saints. In other words, one of the purposes of the church is that we might gather together to equip one another to grow into the image of Christ. It's a responsibility given to pastors, shepherds, elders, to teach and to equip the church to do the work of the ministry so that speaking the truth and love together, we grow up into the image of Christ. We also exist to evangelize those who don't know Christ. Following the death and resurrection of Jesus just prior to his ascension, he commissioned the disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the other uttermost parts of the earth. And they went and they proclaimed the gospel and saw many come to know Christ and they gathered them in local churches there to worship God together. And even today, the church continues to spread the gospel to the nations and locally. But under, undergirding all of this, undergirding the edification of the saints and the evangelism of the lost is our goal to exalt God through Christ. We want to make much of God. In 1 Peter 2.9, Peter says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. The church is called unto Christ to proclaim the excellencies of God. Specifically in First Peter, it's what he's done to accomplish our salvation. And it's interesting then that one of the primary ways that God glorifies himself in the church is through this proclamation, by announcing by declaring what God has done in Christ to save his people and applied that salvation to his people through the Holy Spirit, that he has called his people out of darkness and into marvelous light. It's no surprise then that when Jesus first sends out his disciples here in Luke 9, that one of the, one of the primary tasks that they are given is to proclaim, to preach the kingdom of God. The 12 men that we studied, we've been walking, if you're visiting with us, verse by verse through the book of Luke. We, we studied these men in chapter 6. It's a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors and political extremists who left their livelihoods and their desires and their ambitions and their purposes and their, and their goals. They left those behind and followed Jesus. And he's been, he's been modeling his ministry to them. But by and large, to this point, they've been spectators only. But now Jesus will send them out to preach and to heal. They will do what they've seen Jesus doing, and they will proclaim what they've heard Jesus proclaiming. In fact, we see that in our first couple of verses, that Jesus calls and commissions. Look there in verses 1 and 2. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. 
What's happening in the book of Luke contextually is we're, we're, we're sort of nearing the end of Jesus' ministry there in Galilee. We've said this a few times, but in chapter 9, verse 50, Jesus sets his face towards Jerusalem. He, 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 by and large, will turn much of his attention to the disciples in preparation for his death and resurrection. But he, he is here proclaiming and healing in Galilee. And what, what we've just finished is these four miracles that end here, they culminate in a commissioning of the disciples, a calling together and a sending out. What's interesting, back in chapter 4, beginning in verse 31, there were another four miracles that were recorded in a row. Jesus cast out a demon, then he healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, then there's another miracle story where he goes and it says he healed many others. And then he gathers all the fish in Peter's net, demonstrating his power and authority and glory. And these four miracles culminate in the calling of Peter to follow him and a commissioning of him. You will be a fisher of men. You will no longer catch fish. You will catch men. Well, in Luke chapter 8, he recorded four miracle stories in a row. We've walked through those one at a time. And now he calls his disciples together and he commissions them. Peter and his fellow disciples now will become fishers of men. They will go out to catch men with the message of Christ. So the first thing then that we notice in verse 1 is that Jesus grants them the authority and the power to do this ministry. We talked about the four miracles where Jesus, he, he stilled the storm with his voice. He casts out thousands of angels with, with the power of his voice. Disease and uncleanness left a woman as she just touched Jesus' robe. And then he overcomes death by telling a child to arise. If and we said that all of these, they demonstrate the authority of Jesus, the Son of God. And, and perhaps some of you, as we were walking through those miracles, were thinking, yeah, I agree, these demonstrate the authority and the power of Jesus. But also, I've read the book of Acts, I've, I've read Luke, the apostles do that too. So uh, does this really demonstrate that Jesus is who he says he is? I think we get our, uh, some help in this passage this morning that the apostles are able to work these miracles because they've been granted this power, they've been given this authority by Christ. Their authority, their power is tied directly to Christ. And it's the power that he has continually demonstrated throughout this gospel. Now the word power refers uh, sometimes a strength in general, but it's often used in, in context of miracles and working miracles. And authority is the right to control or command. And so Jesus grants his disciples, the twelve, this authority and power over demons and to cure diseases. They are endowed by Christ with the strength to work these miracles and the authority to cast out demons and to cure disease. So we come across sort of an important principle as we, as we think about how to read our Bible. As you are reading your Bible for yourself, 
And I pray and, and hope that you are reading your Bible regularly and intentionally. What a blessing it is to have the, the Word of God in our own language given to us today. I pray that you're reading regularly and intaking the Word of God. But as you do so, know that, that we're often tempted to read the Bible through our culture's lens, which is an individualistic lens. And so what we tend to do is just sort of make a one-to-one with whoever's in the text with, with us. So one way that might happen in our text is to think, okay, Jesus is talking to the disciples. He gives them power and authority to heal diseases. I'm a disciple of Jesus. I guess I have power and authority. I'm one of the fellas. I'm one of the guys. This is something that I should do. But we want to be careful when we read our Bibles not to make these quick leaps, these quick jumps without considering helpful questions. And so when you're reading your Bible, one helpful question to ask when reading, especially when reading a narrative like, like the Gospels or even Old Testament stories that are recorded for us, much of the Bible is narrative type passages. One question that's helpful to ask is, is this descriptive or is this prescriptive? In other words, is this passage prescribing that I do something, or is it describing what has happened for someone else? Is it describing or is it prescribing? Well, in our context, it's clear that this authority, this power, it's it's given here to the twelve. These men are apostles. They are given a unique status and a unique role in God's plan as he rolls out his plan of salvation. And here they are endowed with special authority for this mission. So while we'll see that there is indeed considerable overlap between what the apostles were sent out to do and what we do as a church, in Ephesians 2.20, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets of which Christ is the cornerstone. We want to be careful not to do just this one-to-one correlation. They heal, so now it's the church's task today to heal. That's not what the text is saying. Here the twelve are gathered. They're granted power and authority, and then they're sent out in verse 2. The word apostle means one who is sent out, and so Jesus gathers them and he sends them out, and they're given the task of healing which we've mentioned, and the task of preaching the kingdom. And these two ministries for the apostles, for the disciples, they would go hand in hand. These two ministries would complement one another. Healing would, would aid them as they proclaimed the kingdom of God. It would demonstrate the authority that has been given to them by Christ to be proclaimers of this kingdom. And it would be a demonstration of the kingdom that was coming. So as they healed, as they cured, as they raised the dead, as they cast out demons, they're announcing the king has come in Christ. The king is here. He doesn't look like what you expected. He's different than what you anticipated. But in fact, he's better than what you longed for. He's better than what you thought he would be. And look here, in the kingdom of Christ, evil flees. And in the kingdom of Christ, death is overthrown. In the kingdom of Christ, disease is no more. In Christ's kingdom, disease and death and sin, they're abolished. So they go out and they heal as they 
preach and proclaim. Like Jesus' power and authority, this would be wielded for the good of others. This healing would be wielded for the good of others in acts of compassion. And as, I, as I considered this text, I thought, you know, there, there are actually a lot of ways that the disciples and even Jesus himself could have demonstrated his power that didn't actually heal or, or deliver anybody. You know, they could have said, hey, you see that mountain over there? Boom, now it's gone. You see how powerful Christ is? You see how powerful I am? Or you see this, you see this rock here? Boom, T-bone steak. Look at my power. Look what, look what I can do. But no, these were not random powers. These were directed at delivering people from their distress in anticipation of the coming kingdom. These were directed at delivering. So we see, just like Christ has come, the disciples are not to serve themselves with this power, but they are to serve others. Ultimately, they're to do good to others, to demonstrate the authority of Christ the King, so that when they proclaim the kingdom, there's an audience that has seen a demonstration of this authority. So how do we apply this then to our context today, the church? Well, we would say this, Christ still calls and Christ still commissions. In fact, after thinking through this text, I think 1 Peter 2.9 makes more sense to us now, that he has formed his people that he has called them out of darkness into marvelous light that we might proclaim. And he has commissioned his people to proclaim his excellencies. And it's through this proclamation of the glory of God seen in the gospel of Jesus Christ, saving sinners, calling people to himself, forgiving them of their sins through the power of the Holy Spirit, that the saints are edified and that the gospel goes out to those who need to be saved. So by affirming that Christ calls us to salvation and commissions us as a body to live unto his glory and not to our own, what we are saying is that Christ gets to set the agenda and has set the agenda for what the church is and what the church is about and what the church does when we gather. So we might paint the back wall or we might throw up a, a, a TV here instead of a screen. Those, are, those aren't things that Christ has commanded. But, the, but by God's grace, we will persist as a, as a church in that which Christ has commanded us to do. There's a, we, a reason we preach the word. There's a reason we publicly read the scriptures there's a reason that we can hear one another as we sing. What a joy to hear everybody singing this morning because we're called to teach and admonish one another through psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's a one-anothering that we do. We're called to observe the Lord's Supper and to baptize believers and to pray. These are some of the means that God has chosen to exalt Himself in the church when we gather. These are some of the means that God uses to mature the saints and to equip them for the work of the ministry and to equip us to proclaim the gospel. So Jesus calls and commissions. Secondly, in the next couple of verses there, Jesus urges and he provides. Look at verse 3 and 4. And he said to them, Take nothing for your, for your journey, 
No staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there, depart. If we could summarize Jesus' call in verse 3, it would be travel light. This is every husband's wish to his wife when they go on vacation. Take neither bag nor staff. And I've seen some of you guys pack. We're not, we're not exempt. Jesus is calling them, though, to take what they have and go. Take what they have and go. Don't grab supplies. You don't need extra provisions. Just go. And so there seems in Christ to be an urgency to this task of, of preaching the kingdom and healing. We've seen in Luke... That is, Jesus was the one who alone did the work of the ministry, that the crowds have been growing larger and larger, and now the disciples are sent out to go preach and to proclaim. The message must go forth. There's an urgency because the message about Christ must go forth if anyone is going to properly respond to this King, to Christ, and be saved. God is patient. He is certainly patient. The scriptures say that he's, he's patient and he desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so if you don't know Christ this morning, God has indeed been patient with you, but there's an urgency to this message because this does not go on indefinitely. There comes a time where we either enter eternity through our death or Christ will come back and he will judge the righteous and the wicked. So there's an urgency that, 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 again, if you don't know Christ, don't go on rejecting Jesus. There's an urgency in our preaching and proclamation of the gospel and our sending forth of missionaries because there's a need for people to hear the gospel in order to be saved. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So if you've been coming, maybe you grew up in the church, but you've been resistant to trust Christ, believe that your sin has put you at odds with your Creator. More than that, your sin has made you, the, at, at enmity with God, has made you an enemy of God. Yet Jesus, as we've seen, even in the book of Luke, has humbled himself and he has come to this earth and he has made the only means by which you might be made right with God, the only means that you might be reconciled to him, the only means that your forgiveness uh, might be granted for your sins. And it's his death on that cross. Is the only way. There's one name under heaven by which we must be saved. If you come to Christ and you confess your sinful state and you throw yourself at His mercy and you're not relying on your own self-righteousness, you're not relying on your own good works, you might be made right with God this morning. This is an urgent message. It's urgent to proclaim Christ. It's urgent to then receive Christ. Notice as well then that these disciples were not only urged, they were not only sent out urgently, but they're called to a simplicity of life in some ways, especially during the, the time of this mission. There'll be longer missions later where they can take supplies. But they're called to this simplicity. We see it in a, a couple places. First, in the lack of provisions that Jesus allows for his disciples to take on their way. In fact, that word bag there that's used, it was, it's most likely referring to a money bag that either a beggar or more appropriately here, an itinerant preacher 
would walk around where a teacher would have a bag and he, he, they would ask for donations for his ministry, for love offerings. Well, the, the apostles, the disciples, were not out to make money off of this mission. Again, they weren't allowed a, even a change of clothes. They certainly weren't out to make a name for themselves or to build their own kingdom. They go out with an urgency to proclaim and make much of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's another way simplicity is seen here. It's in verse 4. In whatever house you enter, stay there, and from there depart. It seems that what Jesus is prohibiting here is the disciples hopping from house to house as they find a better offer. Larry has a hot tub, so... Gary, I appreciate you letting me stay in your house, but I'm going over here. It would undermine their message. It would, it would demonstrate that they're in it for their own glory and their own gain. So here you have the apostles, again, a unique group of men who God will use to establish his church following the ascension of Christ. They've been given power and authority to cast out demons and to heal, yet they are prohibited from profiteering, from serving themselves, puffing themselves up, angling for their own gain. Now consider, some of you may have made this connection, consider how different this is from the many preachers who dupe people to giving their last dollar in order that they might profit, all the while claiming to have the authority and the power to heal and to cure and to cast out demons. A couple years ago, Kenneth Copeland, a prosperity heretic, was cornered by a news agency asking him why he needed a multi-million dollar private jet. His answer was multiple answers, but one of the ones he gave is, well, Tyler Perry sold it so cheap, it would have been dumb for me not to buy it. Benny Hinn's nephew, since coming to Christ, has exposed the extravagant lifestyle of those who claim this gospel of prosperity, which is a false gospel. Men like this are tricking millions of people into giving them money so that they might fulfill their selfish desires. And worst of all, it's often the poor and the destitute and the desperate who send in their last dollar because they've been told, if you send me $100, God will give you $1,000. And that's why I don't mind mentioning a couple of these dudes by name in a sermon like this. Listen, I want to honor and I want to protect and I want to love those who preach Christ faithfully. But guys like this, I want to, I want to warn you and plead with you, don't, don't even give them a moment of your time. They ought to be exposed for deceiving people in order to fulfill their own selfish desires. They were not allowed to profiteer. They were not allowed to live for their own gain. They were also, in verse 4, reliant on God's provision. Really, verses 3 and 4. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, he demonstrated his trust in the Father, in the care of the Father, by quoting from the Old Testament that man does not live by bread alone. 
And now he calls his followers, his disciples, to demonstrate this trust and this this reliance on the good care of the Father. But notice, notice in verse 4, who provides, who God uses to provide for his apostles who will be sent out. The provision comes through those who hear the message and receive it and welcome the apostles into their home. And isn't this how God often works? He works to provide through the people that have received the message. He works through his church. This is like a preview of the book of Acts, where they just sold everything they had and gathered together so that everybody might uh, be provided for. So as a couple of apostles enter a new city, they have to trust the care of their father. They have to trust the plan of their father that God has somebody in this city that's going to hear the proclamation of the kingdom and they're going, to res- they're going to repent of their sin and they're going to rely on this message and they're going to be hospitable and they're going to invite me into this home and I'm going to have a place to stay. All of that, all of that was outside of their control. They didn't have control over who heard and responded to the message and who invited them into their home. But they were called to be faithful and to go out and to proclaim and trust the Father will care for you. If we're honest, we all likely show our pride by not trusting the good care and concern and plan of our Father by trying to bring about those things that are outside of our control. We were reminded from Psalm 131 a a while back, but David reminds us that he has a calm and a quiet soul because he doesn't grasp at those things that are beyond him, that are too marvelous for him. Deuteronomy 29.29 is a passage I quote often. It's one of my favorites. But the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But that which is revealed belongs to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the works of the law. David says you can have a calm and quiet soul when you're not grasping at the secret things that belong to the Lord. Those are his. Those are in his domain. But that which is revealed belongs to us, that we may do it, that we may obey the word of God. So as we seek to be faithful to the Lord, we might trust in his provision, trust in his care because he is a good provider so the disciples are not to be peddlers of the gospel like the false prosperity preachers they're not to be sharing the message for their own gain but nor are they to stick around if they've been rejected in a city and the message will be rejected by many because as we see in the last several verses of our text jesus divides and he confounds Look in verse 5. And wherever they do not receive you, when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening, and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared, and by others that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John, I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. As we've seen over and over, even in the ministry of Christ himself, 
not everyone gladly embraces Christ the way we, the way we might expect if we didn't understand the, the doctrine of sin and that, that man loves darkness rather than light. Not all have embraced Christ as he's gone from town to town, working miracles, proclaiming the kingdom of God. In fact, the religious leaders at this point in Luke have already got it set, by and large, in their mind, they must be rid of Jesus. They have so rejected him that they know he has to go. So it's not surprising then that the delegates, the apostles that Jesus sends out, their message will be rejected by many as well. What we see pretty consistently is that many would, would love to be the recipients of the benefits of the kingdom. They like the signs. They like the miracles. So many would like to be the recipients of the benefits of the kingdom, but they do not want to submit themselves to the king. They do not want to repent of their sins and to trust in Christ. They want, what, they want the good things that they think can improve their life, but they bristle at the idea of serving Jesus, of falling down before him and worshiping him. It is not true today. You know, we won't receive much pushback from the world if we only talk about Jesus as, as a wise teacher who had some pretty good things to say. And if you listen to some of his teaching, you can navigate life a little bit easier. We won't even get much pushback if we say, see, Jesus here, he's a good example of self-sacrificial love. We ought to follow in his example. We won't get a lot of pushback if we say, look at Jesus. We get cheered for this narrative. Look at Jesus. He's a political martyr who stood up to the oppressors in Rome. But the message, the true message of the gospel is controversial. It, it divides. The call to repentance and faith in Christ alone as the only way to know God and to be welcomed into God's presence is a message that divides people. We aren't jerks for Jesus. We've, we don't intentionally provoke people to anger with us. We don't want to be rude or demeaning, but as we seek to faithfully follow Christ in the mission and the task that he has given to the church, there will be times when there is not a popular message. We want people to take offense at the word, to take offense at the message, to take offense at Christ, not in our delivery of that message. But we can take confidence in this. If we've honored God, if we've been humble, if we've been gentle, if we've spoken with the right tone and with the right words, then it's not on us that the message was rejected. It's not on us to save. It's not on us to convert. What I'm really hoping to push back on is sort of this, this narrative that, that, has, that develops, I think, even in, in churches and in Christian circles that say, oh, well, look how bad the church is because the world doesn't love the church. If the church were just more kind and loving, if the church was just more accepting, then, man, the world would just love the church. But Jesus said we can anticipate hatred from the world. Jesus said we can anticipate rejection by the world. In fact, in 1 Peter, it's gentleness and faith 
and love and kindness and also confidence in God and being prepared to have an answer that becomes a testimony to the world when they hate the church, when they persecute Christ's body. Verse 12 of that, 1 Peter chapter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Gentiles there, I think, is just a reference to the unbeliever. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, so here's the rejection, here's the persecution, here's the attack. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The rejection of Christ, the rejection of the message of Christ, is the very opportunity provided for us to respond in a way that glorifies God and others might glorify God on the day of visitation. But the truth is, the reality is we will not respond gently. We will not respond in Christ-likeness if we see ourselves as something other than simple servants of the Lord. We should humble ourselves, remembering that it's by God's grace that we believed. It was the Holy Spirit who opened our eyes to see the glory of the gospel. He called us out of darkness into marvelous light, and it's His message that we proclaim. And if that message is rejected, it's not us, it's, it's Christ whom they're rejecting. And if that message is received, it's not us they're receiving, it's Christ they're receiving. Jesus will say in the next chapter, verse 16, the one who hears you hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So when these disciples go out and they proclaim the kingdom, when they are rejected by, by and large by a whole city, they're to shake off the dust of their feet on the way out of town. This was a common act. This would have been common in Jewish life. In fact, there was a practice when they finish walking through Gentile territory. They would shake the dust off their feet and clothes as a way of ridding themselves of the uncleanness of the Gentiles. So this was a symbolic act demonstrating that, that these cities who reject the message of the kingdom are like Gentiles they, they despise. They are separated from the promises and the blessedness of God. We're shaking our feet off, just like we would shake our feet off against those who are separate from the people of God. This, this was a symbolic uh, warning of the impending judgment of God. It was an announcement that you have rejected Christ, and we will be taking our message to another city. You see, the message of Jesus it unites all those who receive it. But the message of Christ is divisive in the sense that it divides the world up into two different groups of people. The Bible talks about this often and in many ways and in many places. There's the believer and the unbeliever. There's the righteous and the unrighteous. There's the righteous and the self-righteous. The one who walks in light and the one who walks in darkness. There's the wise person and the fool. Not an intellectual fool, but the fool says in his heart, there is no God. So there's the wise and the fool. There's those who are in Christ and those who are in Adam. There's the sheep and the goats. As you get to the end of the Bible, there's those who are in the New Jerusalem and those who are outside the city gates. Maybe you've heard that poem by 
C.T. Studd with the famous line, only one life will, will soon be passed, only what's done for Christ will last. Well, for our purposes this morning, maybe we can tweak one little word in there to, to fit what, our context. Only one life will, to, I can't, well, only one life will soon be passed, only what's done with Christ will last. The message of the gospel divides into those who receive it and to those who reject it. What ultimately matters is what we do with this message of the gospel. Will I receive Christ as Lord? Will I submit my life to Him? Will I love Him with my whole heart? Or will I turn from this message? Will I trust in my own wisdom? Will I rely on my own goodness? The gospel divides us all up into one of those two camps. This message divides This message confounds. We see it in Herod's response there in the last few verses. As Jesus continues to minister there in Galilee, and his followers are gifted to go out and to preach and to heal, news of this reaches Herod the Tetrarch. This is Herod Antipas. This is the son of the guy who tried to kill Jesus after Jesus was just born, Herod the Great. There's, there's Herods all over the Bible. It can be confusing. This is Herod Antipas, Herod uh, the Tetrarch. Sometimes he's called King Herod. That's the same dude. Three, three different titles for this one guy. He ruled over Galilee while Jesus ministered in Galilee. This is the same Herod who imprisoned John the Baptist because John the Baptist confronted him over his sin. And he had John the Baptist ultimately killed. And so as rumors of Jesus are swirling and there's different ideas about who Jesus is, who he is, and we'll talk about some of these when we get to Peter's confession down there in verse 18. But Herod is particularly interested in these rumors that this is John the Baptist come back from the dead. That would be scary for Herod. He's confounded. The text says that he is perplexed with what he is hearing. See, he has heard a lot of things. He's heard a lot of rumors. He hear, hears a lot of things about Christ, but he has not understood. So he asks a question that Luke wants all of us to ask. Who is this? Who is this that I'm hearing so much about? And so he wishes then to see Jesus. He wants to see this guy. And Herod will get his shot. He will get to meet Jesus. Ironically, it won't be there in Galilee where Jesus is currently ministering and where Herod is currently ruling over. It will be in Jerusalem. It will be just prior to the crucifixion of Jesus. You can read about it in Luke 23. Herod is excited to see Jesus. He hopes to receive a sign from Jesus. He wants to have all of his questions about Jesus answered. Maybe, are you John the Baptist come back from the dead? But Jesus will not give him a sign, and Jesus remains silent before him. And Herod is unimpressed. He mocks Jesus and sends him back to Pilate. And Luke says, after that, him and Pilate were great friends. They unite together under their rejection of Christ. You see, to some, Jesus is unimpressive. They're perplexed, they're, they're, they're uh, confounded. You know, if Jesus is unwilling to give me what I want, then he can be cast aside. 
if he's unwilling to do a miracle for me, if he's unwilling to give me a sign, then I'll cast him aside. But to others, to others, Jesus is the king of kings. And he's not not doing a miracle for Herod because he's incapable. He's not silent because he's fearful. He may seem like the one who is perplexed as he sits silently before his accusers, before his interrogators. But this king, Jesus, at the very moment that Herod mocks him, Jesus is sustaining his very breath that he's using to accuse him. This king is the one who created Herod and sustains Herod. It isn't for lack of authority. It's that Jesus has adorned himself in humility, that he has chosen this for himself of his own volition, that he has planned this with the Father from before the foundation of the world, that he is suffering mockery and abuse and indignity and eventually the cross. He's suffering all of it, all of this, because he planned it this way because he desired to fulfill the will of the Father, that he would accomplish salvation for sinners like you and I. What matters is our response to Christ. Herod, he was a king. He had power. He had authority. But he was perplexed and confounded by the person of Jesus. In Luke, it was the fishermen and the tax collectors and the zealots that make up the disciples who hear Jesus respond to him, and are welcomed into Christ's kingdom. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done with Christ shall last. So what is the mission of the church? It's to magnify God through Christ. To magnify God through Christ because he has come into the world to save sinners. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our pride. May we forsake that. May we humble ourselves as we serve the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you for the salvation that Christ has brought. Thank you for opening our eyes to see the glory of the gospel. May your spirit work through the word that's preached. May you open eyes. May you change hearts. May you bring us to repentance. In Jesus' name, amen.